financial industry is central to our nation's ability to grow, to prosper, to compete, and to innovate. This reform will foster that innovation, not hamper it. It's designed to make sure that everyone follows the same set of rules, so that firms compete on price and quality, not on tricks and traps. Welcome to Planet Money. I'm Sana Jaffe-Walt. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Today is Tuesday, February 8th, and that was President Obama you heard at the top. Today on the show, Regulator Book Club. As we've mentioned, Congress earlier this year passed a bill to reform Wall Street. The legislation is the size of a book, and now is the moment we here at Planet Money have been talking about for the past six months, the moment regulators pour over that book, trying to figure out what exactly Congress meant, try to write actual new rules of finance. Of course, there are scores of lobbyists who are trying to help them understand what they think Congress meant. We're going to take you inside the underground battle to win the hearts and minds of regulators. But first, our Planet Money Indicator from Jacob Goldstein. Today's Planet Money Indicator, 6.06%. China's central bank raised its key interest rate, which is the interest on one-year loans, to 6.06%. In other words, the central bank wants to make it harder, wants to make it less appealing for people in China to borrow money. Uh, This was actually the third time in the past few months that China has raised rates. And it's really a very powerful reminder that the economic situation in China is basically the opposite of the situation here in the U.S. In the United States, of course, the worry is that the economy here is too weak. So our central bank, the Federal Reserve, wants people and businesses to spend more money to give the economy a boost. So the Fed is keeping interest rates very close to 0%, very low, to try to encourage people to borrow and spend. Right. Now, in China, on the other hand, the worry is actually that the economy is growing too fast, that people are spending too much money. Among other problems, that tends to cause high inflation. And inflation, it is indeed a huge problem in China right now. Uh, Our editor, Uri Berliner, he was in China for work recently, and he was saying that inflation is what everybody talks about on the streets when, when they talk about the economy. You know, the way people here in the U.S. talk about jobs or the housing market. The official inflation rate in China is somewhere around 4 or 5% right now. But Uri was saying that lots of economists and business leaders in China, they'll say privately that the actual rate may be significantly higher than that, somewhere around 8%, which is really high inflation. So again, by raising interest rates today, China's central bank is making it a little bit less appealing for people to borrow and spend money. And, and the hope is that by doing this and perhaps raising them some more later this year, they'll be able to bring down inflation without totally derailing China's economy. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks. So to kick off today's show, let's go back to July of 2010. Oil was spilling into the Gulf. The World Cup was just wrapping up. It was very hot and muggy in Washington, D.C. And President Obama was about to sign the new Wall Street reform bill. And that morning, he makes this speech. And soon after taking office, I proposed a set of reforms to empower consumers and investors to bring the shadowy deals that caused this crisis into the light of day and to put a stop to taxpayer bailouts once and for all. That is some long applause. Today, (laughs) thanks to a lot of people in this room, those reforms will become the law of the land. 
Roberta McInerney was sitting in the audience when Obama gave this speech. She's a bank regulator. After it passed, it was, uh, well, we were all up all night up on the Hill. We went to the signing ceremony. We saw President Obama sign the bill. That was really exciting. When the press conference ended, Roberta turned to her colleague, Kimberly Copa, and said, Well, now the real work starts. (laughs) Well... There's also a, a real sense of terror. <laughs> That's Kimberly there. Roberta and Kimberly both work for the FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. And the moment Obama signed the bank reform bill, the entire project of reshaping our banking system landed in the hands of these women. These women and a couple hundred other regulators across Washington. Because the bill, it only offers general guidelines for how Congress would like to reshape every important segment of our financial system. It does not actually spell out how to do it. It doesn't write new rules. It leaves that work to the regulators. So for the past six months, these women, Roberta, Kimberly, and another colleague, Ruth, have been carrying around the text of the entire bill, that thing that Obama signed that got the long applause. It's 2,000 pages long. And they don't call it the bill. They call it the book. And basically, these women get together and try to turn this vague thing that Congress could actually all agree on and turn it into actual rules. And what that actually looks like, (laughs) I went to visit them. What it looks like is kind of looks like a book club. These three women walk into Roberta's office with their sweaters and coffee and reading glasses, each carrying the book under their arm. And they offer me coffee and they sort of laugh generously at my very bad jokes. It's like we're all sitting down for the weekly bank regulator book club. That's why I laughed. Um, Okay, so, and just, if you'd just tell me your names and titles. Roberta McInerney, Deputy General Counsel, FDIC. Great. Kimberly Copa, uh, Senior Counsel, Assessments and Legislation, FDIC. Ruth Amberg, Senior Counsel, FDIC. Does that mean they're all lawyers? All lawyers. All three women tasked with taking the book in front of them, bank reform legislation, and making it come to life. Yes, and we have tabs with... um, the main provisions that we need to refer to really quickly. The tabs are all these colored post-its sticking out from all the pages of the book. And Roberta holds it up to show me. The FDIC's job is to write 44 new rules inspired by this book. And I have to say, her book is a disgusting object. It's got frayed edges and stains. The pages are basically turning gray after just six months. Kimberly notices me staring at Roberta's book and pushes forward her even scrappier version. My book is very worn. Uh, (laughs) Your book really looks like you put it through the washer and the dryer and then (laughs) let five dogs chew on it. It it basically falls open to where you need it to. (laughs) So you can think of this bill, this book, as having been divided up into important sections and handed off to different regulating agencies. How do we regulate derivatives? Let's give that part to the CFTC. What do we do about too big to fail? That's the part that goes to these women at the FDIC. Their biggest job is to make it so banks aren't too big to fail, so the government doesn't have to come in and bail them out. Yeah. So, okay. So here's a bill. It says, for instance, in the bill, Section 203, have it open, systemic risk determination on their own initiative or at the request of the secretary, the corporation, and the board of governors shall consider whether to make a written recommendations described in paragraph two with respect to whether the secretary should appoint the corporation as receiver for a financial company. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And that clearly says, big (laughs) banks, you can't be too big to fail anymore. Is that what it means? That's what it means. All right. So if you're a huge financial institution that is on the brink of failure, 
the FDIC will have the authority to come in and take you over the way it does with smaller banks that get into trouble. The FDIC would come in, actually run the company, wind down the assets over time in some sort of orderly way. But of course, this raises all sorts of questions. One big one, how are you going to wind down the assets? You're going to sell them? How much are you going to sell them for? In the meantime, how will the FDIC pay for things? How is it going to pay to run this enormous, enormous institution? Remember, these aren't small community banks now. These are gigantic financial companies. All questions in the hands of these women. So today's book club conversation, if the FDIC does have to do this, where will the money come from to wind down one of these giants? There's supposed to be a line of credit with the Treasury. So Roberta flips to Section 206 for discussion. Here's what it says. It says, for example, it says the FDIC... For the first 30 days, we have 10%. We can use 10% of the total consolidated assets of the company, the failed company. And then after 30 days, we can borrow an amount that's equal to 90% of the fair value of the total consolidated assets of each company that are available for repayment. She stops here for emphasis, raises her eyebrows as if to indicate, well, obviously, here is where the interesting part is. (laughs) Well, I mean, as a lawyer, this is probably maybe boring for me, but as a lawyer... Well, uh, what's, what does the term fair value mean? The term fair value is not defined. Discussion ensues. Does fair value mean market value? That seems like it might be likely. That would be the amount that you could sell bank assets for on the market at the given time when the bank failed. The FDIC could go out and try to sell the assets and make some of the money back. But remember, with uh, toxic assets, right, they were toxic because no one knew what they were worth. It wasn't a clear value to attach to them. So the next crisis, presumably it won't be about toxic assets, but there could very easily be some other sort of complicated thing that they're going to have to figure out how to put a price tag on. So they need a clear and general definition. And after they talk about this for a long time, Roberta sort of rolls her eyes when she reads assets available for repayment. How is that defined, she says. And then at the bottom of the page, they spend a long time on what is the intended meaning of the word appropriate in this section. And it's around this point that the book club starts to feel more like a Talmud study session, like a bunch of rabbis sitting around trying to interpret the meaning of every single word of the Bible. So if we take that metaphor, that would make Congress God or Moses or something all-powerful and vague. Yeah, I bet Congress would like that. It does. I mean, as soon as I occurred to me that it felt Talmudic what they were doing, I could not stop seeing these women as sort of ancient rabbis interpreting Congress's word, you know, carrying around their tattered versions of the book, and pouring over each word down to the most mundane details. What counts as an asset? And what about foreign assets? And what about assets that are that are off balance sheet and so forth. And I think but those little details are hugely important. And you have to imagine there are little book clubs like this going on in all the regulatory agencies all over Washington. And outside the doors, there are armies of people hoping to try to influence how these women in this case define something like fair value and every other one of the 44 rules they are writing. Those people are, of course, the lobbyists. Yes, and if the lobbyists are paying attention, that tells you this is hugely important. So bank lobbyists are out in force, zeroing in on all those nitty-gritty details that these three women and all the other regulators and all the other agencies are obsessing about right now. The lobbyists are waging battle to try to influence each and every interpretation. So David, I've been spending many weeks now in hearings and on the phone in Washington trying to learn their war strategies. And to do that, we turn to another section of the book, 
This is Section 725, Derivatives Clearing Organizations. So derivatives, you remember derivatives, those financial contracts that brought down AIG. Congress wants the Commodities Futures Trading Commission to regulate derivatives. That's the CFTC. The CFTC is the regulator that so far oversees things like the corn futures market, which are actually a kind of derivative. And now they're going to be regulating much more complicated products. And Taken together, derivatives are a huge market. The estimated size is $600 trillion. So there are a lot of questions that need to be resolved by the regulators, such as which derivatives will be covered and how exactly will they be regulated? Really big, important questions, which of course means that there are really big, important lobbyists paying a lot of attention. So let's leave the book club and take you inside the opposing locker room where the lobbyists develop their strategies. So we're going to look at two stories of how they do this. So the first story is is kind of weird. It probably falls into the dirty tricks category. This is the case of the mysterious letters. Yes. Okay. So here's the setup. The CFTC right, has to write these new rules to regulate derivatives. And they have asked anyone who has an opinion about how they should do that to send them letters. So those letters get published on their website. And presumably, the CFTC regulators read them and hear the public's concerns. So recently, every week, Scylla Brush, a reporter with Bloomberg News, goes through some of those letters just to check out you know, what people are writing and who's writing. Although, for the most part, who is writing is never that interesting. Until one November morning, he sees a peculiar signature, and it's not like the others. The names are usually big banks on Wall Street, some financial institutions that are based around the world, some other you know, large manufacturing or, or energy companies in the U.S. that do have a, a large swaps business. I just hadn't seen Burger King. Burger King. Burger King. <laughs> I know, Burger King, they're a big company, right? Maybe they're using derivatives to hedge cattle futures to make sure they don't lose <laughs> no, money. No, no, no. But this was a local Burger King franchise. It was signed from Terry Clark, L.W. Clark Incorporated in Northwest Arkansas. So this is a tiny company that runs six Burger Kings and had a Burger King logo on the top of the letter. So Scylla, the Bloomberg News reporter, called them up and he got the treasurer, Tara Brace. And... They were asking us to comment on our letter and why we felt so strongly about it that we had contacted the Commodity Futures Trading uh, Commission. Tara told the reporter, I have no idea what you're talking about. And Silla explained he's calling about the lobbying letter L.W. Clark wrote to the CFTC about derivatives reform. And there's quiet. And he says, you know, the CFTC, the regulator that has to write new rules about regulating derivatives, you sent them this letter. And Tara shook her head. No, we're a Burger King franchise. We had no idea what they were talking about. Um, it was far beyond our <laughs> our usual um, areas of expertise. We were completely baffled. The letter, it turned out, was a fake. And when Scylla Brush, the reporter, realized this, he started looking through all the lobbying letters sent to the CFTC around the same time and found six more fake letters, all with an Arkansas connection. So one was from an Arkansas county sheriff. There were two from Arkansas lawyers. A mental health counselor supposedly sent one of these letters. And Marilyn Edwards, an Arkansas county judge who, I'm telling you, does not sound like someone you want to cross. I don't like people signing my signature that doesn't have authorization to do so. Right, right. Let's just put it this way. I was not happy. Why do you think that um, your, it was you? Why do you think it was your name that they forged? Now, honey, I can't tell you why someone would do that. Luckily, David, at this point, I can tell you. So 
here's what happened. Last summer, one yet unnamed company decided that it wanted to hire a PR firm to launch a grassroots letter-writing campaign on derivatives reform. I love the idea that a grassroots letter-writing campaign on derivatives reform might even it might exist. <laughs> it, it does. It did. But it didn't go that well. The PR firm that was hired, they hired a contractor in Arkansas who hired a subcontractor in Arkansas. And instead of finding real people who care about the minutia of the derivatives market, presumably that's a challenging thing to do, the subcontractor just went ahead and forged the letters from, you know, grassrootsy sounding people. All right. So this is fun, but it doesn't sound like it was a central strategy the lobbyists were employing to try to influence lawmakers on derivatives. No, but I do feel like the whole fiasco in Arkansas it, it does tell us some important things about where financial reform is right now. So so one is just that the conversation is completely not in the domain of regular people. Like when this was in Congress, there was talk about derivatives and there were consumer groups who were lobbying for derivatives. Right now, that is not true. And in fact, it was such an outrageous idea that there would be regular people like a mental health counselor or some judge from Arkansas who would write anything to the CFTC about derivatives, that their letters were caught immediately as strange. <laughs> of all the you know hundreds of letters that come into the CFTC, they were the only few ordinary people, and they were fraudulent. There is no such thing as grassroots when it comes to you know writing rules for financial regulation. I guess the other thing it tells us is that someone, some interest group, cared desperately enough about the issue to try and launch some kind of grassroots derivatives campaign. Okay, so that's story number one. Story number two, and this is a much more common strategy used to influence derivatives reform. It's more straightforward, and it's just showing up. What follows on from that, the data that supports those IDs is where the challenge is. Yeah, but that's where I'm trying to get. So if you go as a... All right, so this is a public hearing at the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, the same agency that was receiving those fraudulent letters. And as we said, the CFTC's big responsibility is to figure out how to regulate those hundreds of trillions of dollars of derivatives contracts. And one of the things that they've been doing in addition to getting letters is that they've been holding these public hearings where they can ask for feedback on how to do that. And I went to one of those hearings in D.C. And we're in this, you know, hearing room. There's big tables set up in a sort of U shape. So there's two regulators sitting at the bottom of the U in the front. And then the rest of the table are eight people from the financial industry, all people with some stake in new derivatives rules. It's the regulators and the regulated. Now, this is a public hearing, but the first clue that I get that this is not a random sampling of the public sitting at the table today is this. What turnaround time frame is needed for assignment of a UCI to an entity that seeks one? The conversation is incredibly technical. The regulators ask these incredibly technical questions, and then the financial industry people answer these incredibly technical questions. And all surrounding the table, there's a small audience sitting on these chairs. But I have to say, I'm pretty certain all those people were financial services people, too, because they all kind of seem to know each other in the breaks. They're all chatting. They're all wearing suits with briefcases. And everyone in the room chuckles at the same inside jokes that I do not understand. Uh, as a not-for-profit endeavor, I think I vote for my colleague from Bloomberg. <laughs> um, no, on a serious note, um, <laughs> you I didn't really get vote that? for George. <laughs> I'm um, like still wondering what that joke was the, about. I uh, listened back to that tape right over and over again to try to figure it out. I have I no idea. I'll explain it to you later. Uh, but so this, uh, this is a public hearing without any public in it. 
I mean, I guess technically industry people are public, but yeah, they're all people with some direct financial stake in how the rules end up being written. So the hearing is, it goes on with these technical questions. The regulators are asking them mostly about how to set up an exchange for derivatives. And this is part of the CFTC's mandate, that they need to figure out how these derivatives can be traded on an exchange. And they're asking about how the technology works and who the players are. They're asking the players themselves. All sorts of questions, the UCI question, that there's some questions about UPI concerns, which is another thing I've never heard of. It's mostly this guy, David Taylor, one of the two regulators asking questions. And at one point, David Taylor sort of shifts in his seat and then says this. There is, before we move further down the question list, there, there is a question on here that, and I, I was thinking how to put it, um, are there existing candidates for this role? Uh, and who are they? There's a bit of silence after this. And after a few moments, one voice pipes up from the end of the table. Yes, we are a candidate. <laughs> so I vote for myself. But uh, not, So not, Paul Jansen's with a company called Swift. He spends a couple minutes explaining why his company's experience make them a very good match to run part of these exchanges. And when he's finished, the man to his right speaks up. Um, no, we do think that AVOX has some core capabilities here. Um, AVOX today And then has one by one, every other person at the table volunteers his services. I'm very grateful to my two colleagues to my left for jumping on this question first and, <laughs> and setting the tone. Uh, so just to throw our hat in the ring um, and, and make sure people are aware... Um, Obviously, Bloomberg um, does play a role uh, in this space, and I think we've been very public. So every single person volunteers their expertise and services? No, all, all but one. And I think that guy was just shy. He didn't say that much all morning. <laughs> so this is an informational session, but it suddenly becomes like like it's a job interview or something. Everyone's saying, hey, you should hire me right there in public. I feel like you're getting a very polite version of what's actually happening behind closed doors a lot of the time. And everyone at the table, they're advising the regulators on how to do things. They have millions of dollars riding on the outcome of these sessions. Yeah, so this is arguably the most important part of the bank reform process happening right now. And lobbyists and financial industry representatives are the only ones writing letters. They're the only ones sitting at the table. But Here's the thing. As I was talking to regulators and lobbyists, almost all of them will tell you, yeah, of course that's the way it works. Who else knows about the time frame it takes for a UCI to clear? You know, of course, the lobbyists are deeply involved in this process, and they are deeply involved. We have a huge machine working on this, trying to give the regulators the content, the facts, which we know many of them do not have. This is lobbyist Tim Ryan. He's the CEO of SIFMA. He represents a bunch of the big Wall Street names that you know. He's wearing a tie covered in brightly colored golf clubs, and he likes to sort of wave his pointer finger in the air to emphasize his arguments. And Tim repeated this one argument to me more than any other. He kept saying, bank regulation is complicated because banking is complicated. The biggest mistake the American people make, he told me, is assuming that regulators know everything. They don't. They need help. They need our help. Remember, Congress is saying to the CFTC, hey, figure out how to regulate this enormous market, the derivatives market, that you've never, by the way, regulated this way before. Of course, the people who actually work in this market, like the people Tim Ryan represents, they know more than the regulators. So when he sets up private meetings with CFTC commissioners, which he and his people often do, they go in knowing the regulators need them as much as they need the regulators. So we'd say, here's A to Z banks 
this is what they generally think you should be doing. This is how if someone said to us, you write the rules for this business, this is how we would do it. You're not you're not being asked, you know, to write the rules, though, no. I hope. No. <laughs> um, so so why why do we need you to go to the regulators and say, if we were writing the rules, if you were asking us, here's what we would do? Well, I've been a regulator, and the way in which you do this is exactly as I've just described it, because you can't possibly expect people in the government at all levels to understand all of this stuff. They're just they're not market participants. Regulators are not market participants. That's true. And they don't happen to know what the turnaround time for the assignment of a UCI is. Industry knows that. Regulators don't know all the unintended consequences of defining fair value in some particular way. And most of the CFTC regulators have probably never bought or sold the derivative in their lives. And actually, a lot of the regulators say themselves, yes, we need help from the insiders. I talked to Bart Chilton, who is a CFTC commissioner, and he says, you look at this book, the book that the FDIC women were studying in their book club, and there's a lot of gray area. Well, what is a swaps dealer? Who 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 are these people that trade these mysterious things uh, in, in, in dark pools? So Bart Chilton has studied swaps and derivatives. He knows what a swaps dealer is generally, but his job is to come up with a specific definition that is going to include some people and leave some people out. And there's huge variety in this market. So he has a lot to learn from people who work every day in the market. He says, basically, you go to these lobbying meetings and you just have to separate out what they say that's purely in their self-interest from what is actually useful information. But everything they say is going to be in their self-interest, right? True, true. But it could also be true what they say. So Chilton tells me, you know, he'll try to listen for phrases like we are special. That always makes him pay attention (laughs) or hurt American competition puts him off usually. But it's hard because sometimes institutions are special or sometimes some new regulation might hurt American competition. And then Chilton told me this other thing that actually surprised me more than anything. He says he doesn't get a lot of time to actually think about new regulation anyway, let alone write new rules, because this is a typical day. Well, it usually starts with uh, lobby meetings and ends with lobby meetings in the middle. Well, we've got lobby meetings. How, how is that? I don't know if I want to say the word fair, but how, how is that fair that they get access to you all day long, that they have your attention all day? Uh, well, I mean, look, this is democracy. People have a right to representation. Uh, I think that the mega banks are are more represented than others, but the, uh, I certainly will meet with anybody who wants to meet with me. The thing is, most regular people aren't calling up the CFTC for a meeting. Burger King franchises and county judges are not writing letters of concern. The issues are too specific and too opaque. Hannah, I have to say, listening to this, I feel, I feel. I feel sort of sad, maybe uh, depressed. I don't know. You know, there are no public at the public hearings, right? The regulators are clearly outnumbered by the lobbyists, by the resources and the staff of the people they're supposed to regulate. In fact, they are so inundated that they have trouble finding the time to even write new rules. And you're telling me it might have to be this way? Yeah, I guess I, guess <laughs> I am. Well, it doesn't have to be this way. So these hearings are public, David. If you want to go, the CFTC just held a very lively public staff roundtable discussion discussing swap data record keeping and reporting requirements. 
you just missed that one. That was just a few weeks ago. But there is another one coming up, the 12th series on proposed rules under Dodd-Frank, February 20th, Washington, D.C., or live broadcast. Don't miss it. All right. We will try to listen to some of these and help you make sense of them. Last summer, we did several podcasts about the bank reform bill in which we said the key issues are still up in the air. What really matters is what the regulators do with the bill, how they write the rules. We have a post on our blog, npr.org slash money, where we've tried to update you on where those key parts are right now in the process. In some cases, we have an inkling from regulators on how they are likely to interpret the bill. And we have the dates they are supposed to be finished by. That is on our blog, npr.org slash money. And that is thanks to our fabulous, hardworking intern, Baldor Hedison. He did a valiant job going through all the regulating agencies' websites to try to figure that out for you. We're also going to link to that story from the Bloomberg News reporter about the fraudulent letters sent in to the CFTC. That'll all be on our blog npr.org slash money. Send us email. We'd love to hear from you. Planetmoney at npr.org. You can also find us on Facebook. I'm David Kestenbaum. And I'm Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.